A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 6. Minia to Siut, Part 1. It is Christmas Day. The M.B.s are coming to dinner, the cooks are up to their eyes in entrees, the crew are treated to a sheep in honor of the occasion, the newcomers are unpacking, and we are all gradually settling down into our respective places. Now the newcomers consist of four persons, a painter, a happy couple, and a maid. The painter has already been up the Nile three times, and brings a fund of experience into the council. He knows all about sandbanks and winds and mooring places, and is acquainted with most of the native governors and consuls along the river, and is great on the subject of what to eat, drink, and avoid. The stern cabin is given to him for a studio, and contains frames, canvases, drawing paper, and easels enough to start a provincial school of art. He is going to paint a big picture at Abu Simbel. The happy couple, it is unnecessary to say, are on their wedding tour. In point of fact, they have not yet been married a month. The bridegroom is what the world chooses to call an idle man, that is to say, he has scholarship, delicate health, and leisure. The bride, for convenience, shall be called the little lady. Of people who are struggling through that helpless, idle phase of human life called the honeymoon, it is not fair to say more than that they are both young enough to make the situation interesting. Meanwhile the deck must be cleared of the new luggage that has come on board, and the day passes in a confusion of unpacking, arranging, and putting away. Such running to and fro as there is down below, such turning out of boxes and knocking up of temporary shelves, such talking and laughing and hammering. Nor is this bustle confined downstairs. Ptolemy and the waiters are just as busy above, adorning the upper deck with palm branches and hanging the boat all round with rows of colored lanterns. One can hardly believe, however, that it is Christmas Day, that there are fires blazing at home in every room, that the church field, perhaps, is white with snow, and that the familiar bells are ringing merrily across the frosty air. Here, at midday, it is already too hot on deck without the awning, and when we moor towards sunset near a riverside village in a grove of palms, the cooler air of evening is delicious. There is novelty, even in such a commonplace matter as dining out, on the Nile. You go and return in your felucca as if it were a carriage, and your entertainers summon you by firing a dinner-gun instead of sounding a gong. Wise people who respect the feelings of their cooks fire a dressing-gun as well, for watches soon differ in a hopeless way for want of the church clock to set them by, and it is always possible that host and guest may be an hour or two apart in their reckoning. The customary guns having therefore been fired, and the party assembled, we sat down to one of Cook Bedoui's prodigious banquets. Not, however, till the plum-pudding, blazing demonically, appeared on the scene, did any of us succeed in believing that it was really Christmas Day. Nothing could be prettier or gayer than the spectacle that awaited us when we rose from table. A hundred and fifty colored lanterns outlined the boat from end to end, sparkled up the masts, and cast broken reflections in the moving current. The upper deck, 
hung with flags, and partly closed in with awnings, looked like a bower of palms. The stars and the crescent moon shone overhead. Dim outlines of trees and headlands, and a vague perspective of gleaming river, were visible in the distance, while a light gleamed now and then in the direction of the village, or a dusky figure flitted along the bank. Meanwhile, there was a sound of revelry by night, for our sailors had invited the Bagstone's crew to unlimited coffee and tobacco, and had quite a large party on the lower deck. They drummed, they sang, they danced, they dressed up, improvised a comic scene, and kept their audience in a roar. Rais Hassan did the honors. George, Ptolemy, and the maid sat apart at the second table and sipped their coffee genteelly. We looked on and applauded. At ten o'clock a pan of magnesium powder was burned, and our fantasia ended with a blaze of light like a pantomime. In Egypt, by the way, any entertainment which is enlivened by music, dancing, or fireworks is called a fantasia. And now, sometimes sailing, sometimes tracking, sometimes punting, we go on, day by day, making what speed we can. Things do not, of course, always fall out exactly as one would have them. The wind too often fails when we most need it, and gets up when there is something to be seen on shore. Thus, after a whole morning of tracking, we reach Beni Hassan at the moment when a good breeze has suddenly filled our sails for the first time in forty-eight hours, and so, yielding to counsels which we afterwards deplored, we pass on with many a longing look at the terraced doorways pierced along the cliffs. At Rhoda, in the same way, we touch for only a few minutes to post and inquire for letters, and put off till our return the inland excursion to Dair el Nakul, where is to be seen the famous painting of the Colossus on the sledge. But sights deferred are fated sometimes to remain unseen, as we found by and by to our exceeding loss and regret. Meanwhile the skies are always cloudless, the days warm, the evenings exquisite. We, of course, live very much in the open air. When there is no wind, we land and take long walks by the riverside. When on board, we sketch, write letters, read Champollion, Bunsen, and Gardner Wilkinson, and work hard at Egyptian dynasties. The sparrows and water wagtails perch familiarly on the awnings and hop about the deck. The cocks and hens chatter, the geese cackle, the turkeys gobble in their coops close by and our sacrificial sheep, leading a solitary life in the felucca, comes baaing in the rear. Sometimes we have as many as a hundred chickens on board, to say nothing of pigeons and rabbits, and two or even three sheep in the felucca. The poultry-yard is railed off, however, at the extreme end of the stern, so that the creatures are well away from the drawing-room, and when we moor at a suitable place, they are let out for a few hours to peck about the banks and enjoy their liberty. L. and the little lady feed these hapless prisoners with breakfast scraps every morning, to the profound amusement of the steersman, who, unable to conceive any other motive, imagines they are fattening them for table. Such is our Noah's Ark life, pleasant, peaceful, and patriarchal. Even on days when there is little to see and nothing to do, it is never dull. Trifling incidents which have, for us, the excitement of novelty are continually occurring. Other dahabiyas, their flags and occupants, are a constant source of interest. Meeting at mooring places for the night, we now and then exchange visits. Passing each other by day, we dip ensigns, fire salutes, and punctiliously observe the laws of maritime etiquette. Sometimes a cook's excursion steamer hurries by, crowded with tourists, 
or a government tug towing three or four great barges closely packed with wretched-looking, half-naked fellaheen bound for forced labor on some new railway or canal. Occasionally we pass a dahabiyah sticking fast upon a sandbank, and sometimes we stick on one ourselves. Then the men fly to their punting poles, or jump into the river like water-dogs, and, grunting in melancholy cadence, shove the boat off with their shoulders. The birds, too, are new, and we are always looking out for them. Perhaps we see a top-heavy pelican balancing his huge yellow bill over the edge of the stream and fishing for his dinner, or a flight of wild geese trailing across the sky towards sunset, or a select society of vultures perched all in a row upon a ledge of rock, and solemn as the bench of bishops. Then there are the herons who stand on one leg and doze in the sun, the strutting hoopoes with their legendary topknots, the blue and green bee-eaters hovering over the uncut dura. The pied kingfisher, black and white like a magpie, sits fearlessly under the bank and never stirs, though the tow-rope swings close above his head and the dahabiyah glides within a few feet of the shore. The paddy-birds whiten the sandbanks by hundreds and rise in a cloud at our approach. The sacred hawk, circling overhead, utters the same sweet, piercing, melancholy note that the pharaohs listened to of old. The scenery is, for the most part, of the ordinary Nile pattern, and for many a mile we see the same things over and over again, the level bank shelving down steeply to the river, the strip of cultivated soil, green with maize or tawny with dura, the frequent mud village and palm grove, the deserted sugar factory with its ungainly chimney and shattered windows, the water-wheel slowly revolving with its necklace of pots, the shadoof worked by two brown athletes, the field of laden camels, the desert, all sand-hills and sand-plains with its background of mountains, the long reach, and the gleaming sail ahead. Sometimes, however, as at Kalm Amar, we skirt the ancient brick mounds of some forgotten city, with fragments of arched foundation and even walls and doorways reaching down to the water's edge, or sailing close under ranges of huge perpendicular cliffs, as at Gebel Abu Fada, startle the cormorants from their haunts, and as, and peer as we pass into the dim recesses of many a rock-cut tomb excavated just above the level of the inundation. This Gebel Abu Fada has a bad name for sudden winds, especially at the beginning and end of the range, where the Nile bends abruptly and the valley opens out at right angles to the river. It is fine to see Rais Hassan as we approach one of the worst of these bad bits, a point where two steep ravines divided by a bold headland command the passage like a pair of grim cannon, and rake it with blasts from the northeastern desert. Here the current, flowing deep and strong, is met by the wind and runs high in crested waves. Our little captain, kicking off his shoes, himself springs up the rigging and there stands silent and watchful. The sailors, ready to shift our mainsail at the word of command, cling some to the shog-hool and some to the end of the yard. The boat tears on before the wind. The great bluff looms up darker and nearer. Then comes a breathless moment. Then a sharp, sudden word from the little man in the main rigging, a yell and a whoop from the sailors, a slow, heavy lurch of the flapping sail, and the corner is turned in safety. The cliffs here are very fine, much loftier and less uniform than at Gebel et Teir, rent into strange forms as of sphinxes, cheese-rings, towers, and bastions, 
honeycombed with long ranges of rock-cut tombs, and undermined by water-washed caverns in which lurk a few lingering crocodiles. If at Gebel at Tayr the rock is worn into some semblance of arabesque ornamentation, here it looks as if inscribed all over with mysterious records in characters not unlike the Hebrew. Records they are, too, of prehistoric days, chronicles of his own deeds carved by the great god Nile himself, the hypamu of ancient time, but the language in which they are written has never been spoken by man. End of section 16